unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Thamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun-Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Non-alignment, secularism, socialism, democracy, high modernism, these are all ideas that students of India have long associated with India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru. These elements have been so embedded in the Indian psyche that we regularly speak of a Nehruvian consensus without even thinking twice. A new book by the scholar Taylor Sherman revisits this consensus and finds that all is not what it seems. These high-minded notions that we've long associated with Nehru are, at their core, myths. And like all good myths, there's a kernel of truth somewhere in there, but the reality is far more nuanced. Taylor discusses these ideas and much else in a new book, Nehru's India, A History in Seven Myths, published last year by Princeton University Press. Taylor teaches in the Department of International History at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and she joins me on the show today from Sydney, Australia. Taylor, congrats on the book, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. Thanks for the invite, Milan. It's nice to meet you. So uh, I I want to ask first, uh, of course, about the origins of this book. You mentioned in the preface that you were sort of digging through the archives. You were researching an, an earlier project on secularism and independent India. And as you were going through this kind of raw material, you began to notice a stark disconnect between Nehru's rhetoric, you know, his writings, his speeches on the one hand, and the sort of lived realities on the ground on the other. You know, tell us a little bit about the kind of disconnect that you discovered and sort of how you started to kind of unravel this thread. Sure. Um, so this has its origins in a project about Hyderabad, uh, about the police action in Hyderabad uh, in 1948, where the government of India forcibly integrated the state of Hyderabad into the Indian Union via what was called the police action and is really just a military operation. Uh, and so in the aftermath of that military operation, there was widespread orchestrated violence against Muslims, their properties and their places of worship. Many people were ousted from their houses. There were thousands of murders. Religious sites were attacked and they continued to be attacked. There was a, a broad spurt of violence and then things continued to be attacked. People and, and places continued to be attacked for several years afterwards. And this was a very traumatic time for the Muslims of Hyderabad. And what I found in Nehru's speeches was that um, the secularism that we sometimes imagined of Nehru, right? So he would visit Hyderabad regularly and he would address the Muslims of Hyderabad and he would more or less say, I feel your pain. I see the pain that you are going through. Uh, you belong in India. We hope you stay in India. We want you to be rehabilitated. We want you to be able to return to your homes and your properties and your places of worship. And we, the government of India, are going to try to make that happen. And he would come to Hyderabad and then the, the, the Urdu press would say, oh, we all feel better. <laughs> and the reality was that Muslims in Hyderabad found it very difficult to get any kind of rehabilitation. Uh, this was mostly because local level, district level officials refused to rehabilitate the, the community and the individuals of the community. So they uh, didn't get, Muslims didn't get access to the rehabilitation funds that were collected for them. They didn't get restored to their properties. Their places of worship weren't rebuilt or the, the idols that had been installed in them were not removed. So there was a big difference between what Nehru was saying, which is you belong, 
we're going to help you belong. And then he was saying, we're all going to move forward and we're all going to work on development because once material prosperity sets in for India, then all these religious feelings, they're all going to, they're all going to dissipate and we're all going to have communal harmony. Right. And not, that none of that happened for, for Muslims in Hyderabad and, and largely for Muslims in India. I want to just sort of jump into the, the sort of first myth that, that the book takes on, right? Which is which is a big one. And in some sense, it, you, you also say in the preface that you can kind of read this book uh, in any order you want, but you should start with this chapter, which is the myth that Nehru was the quote unquote architect of modern India, right? Um, and you say, I think quite rightly that, you know, when we talk about the initial post-1947 period, you know, most of us casually substitute Nehru for India, right? They're kind of coterminous or synonymous in our heads. Uh, but you say, look, there was no real consensus as to the ideals that Nehru stood for, right? Uh, uh, nor on the extent to which he'd been able to transform the nation according to his own blueprint. Uh, that's a direct quote. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you think this idea of a kind of Nehruvian consensus is a is, is somewhat of a fabrication, right? And and how 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 is it that it was kind of propagated and promoted over the decades? Um, yeah, so let me say you can read the book in any order. And I wrote the book in any order. I can't remember what chapter I started with, but I didn't start with this chapter on Nehru in part because he's such a big figure, right? And uh, the selected works run to almost 100 volumes. And if you start with Nehru, you're never going to get past him. And so I actually wrote this chapter last and I started with his death. And I started with the eulogies about him after he passed away. And I noticed that actually there was no consensus when people wrote about Nehru just the day after he died. There was no consensus about uh, how, he, how or whether he transformed India. The idea of consensus comes from uh, largely from one man, Rajni Kotari, who was an eminent political scientist, held a number of prominent positions in India in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, and, and kept writing about Nehru and the Nehru years. So in 1964-65, shortly after Nehru's death, he wrote about the Nehruvian consensus. And what he meant was that there was a consensus in how to go about politics, a kind of modus vivendi, if you will, between the opposition parties and the ruling Congress party, which involved keeping the temperature low, respecting institutions, having respect for one's opponent. It was a way of doing politics that was, okay, probably quite patrician, but he praised it and it was largely shaped by Nehru. And I do agree that Nehru and the generation of people around Nehru set that tone for how to do politics. Now, what happens is as Kotari, as we, as India and Kotari get farther and farther away from Nehru's actual life and his time in office, the idea of consensus expands and it comes to take on the idea that there were there was a kind of ideological consensus in India. And the, the further one gets from 1960, the 1960s, the more different India is. And so then looking back on that past, people found more, and Kotari himself found more consensus in the past than there actually was. But there seem to be two, sort of two different ideas here, right? So, so one idea is, you know, was there a kind of ideological consensus in society? And, and I think you're quite right. A lot of people have come to the view 
that, you know, there may have been a relatively kind of thin, what we call the creamy layer, right, uh, that, that, that may have agreed on a certain set of principles, but that didn't really penetrate very deeply into society. But then the second idea, which, which is I think what you're also saying in the book, is that, uh, it, you know, if you just isolate Nehru from all of this, even in his own head and his own thinking, he wasn't necessarily totally clear or, or unambiguous, I should say, on the on the various things that he stood for. Is that uh, the correct interpretation? Yes, I think both of those are correct. And it's very important to understand that Nehru chose not to be very precise and uh, about his own thinking. He regularly was called upon to define socialism, for example, and he refused to do it. Why? Because he is operating in the age of the you know 40s and 50s in the aftermath of authoritarianism in Nazi Germany and Stalin's Russia, and he could see the damage that ideology did to politics and to society. And so he deliberately chose not to define his various um, programs and policies in very short little aphorisms, in part so he could continue the debate and so he could allow those concepts and ideas and programs to, to evolve. I want to ask you about the kind of foreign policy piece of the book, right? Many of our listeners follow Indian foreign policy quite closely. I think they'll be surprised to hear that you downplay somewhat the centrality of non-alignment in Indian foreign policy. And you have this really great line where you say, the concept of non-alignment simply cannot contain, like a tidy box, all of India's ideas about and interactions with the world, which is a, which is a, a great way of putting it. Uh, you say instead that, look, India's foreign policy approach can best be understood as post-imperial, first and foremost, and, and second of all, kind of motivated by a genuine kind of humanist kind of vision, right? A concern about kind of, you know, the, the, the sort of people and subjugated peoples. Could you unpack these sort of elements for us about, you know, what you think the, the kind of broader uh, leitmotif of Indian foreign policy was? Sure. I mean, if we think of Indian foreign policy as non-aligned, that to me means India's main concern or concerns were with the Cold War and the problems of the Cold War. And actually, if you look at what India was working on in the aftermath of uh, independence and partition, its main concerns were with the emergence of the country from an empire, right? It had uncertain borders with uh, with many of its neighbors. And that was the result of the way the British Empire and neighboring empires like the Qing Empire operated. They didn't have very clear borders. And so the other major concern that India has in the aftermath of independence is with Indians overseas. And that's a consequence of the imperial relationship as well, because those Indians were in all those other British colonies because of the empire. Neither one of those maps onto non-alignment, non neither of the superpowers cared about Indians overseas, and they were deeply concerned with uh, conflict over borders, but not in the same way that India and its neighbors were. And so India had much different concerns from, from those of the Cold War. The second part of your question has to do with people. And I think we have to be careful here about assuming that Indian foreign policy, because it was concerned with people, had this idealistic element and it was only humanist. Uh, and so, yes, India was concerned with people. What were they concerned with? They were concerned with uh, 
the right of people to determine their future. That doesn't mean that every people got a country in India's view. They were very concerned that minority groups should have protection as minorities, uh, not as separate nations. You can see the origins of that in partition, of course, but also in the way India dealt with Indians overseas. They wanted those overseas Indians to be protected in the places where they already were in South Africa, in uh, Ceylon, Sri Lanka, in East Africa, etc. But that concern with people wasn't just idealist and it wasn't just about rights. It was also about pinning people down, about keeping them in place, about giving them a nationality, one nationality, not more than one, one passport, not two, uh, and about securing their loyalty through positive things, such as uh, encouraging them to uh, be partners with the African national movements in, in East Africa or in South Africa, but also through negative things, through punishing those people who, on the borders of India, between India and Pakistan, for example, or between India and China, making sure those people were loyal to India, make, stopping them from moving, stopping their traditional routes of migration across those borders and making sure they maintained loyalty to whichever side they were on. And if it was India, they had to maintain loyalty to India. So there's a, there are, you know, it's a carrot and stick policy with people. There is also a kind of different interpretation of law and alignment that you hear sometimes, which is, you know, it, it reminds me of kind of Washington's farewell address, right? Which is, you know, beware of foreign entanglements, right? Which is, we have so many domestic uh, developmental issues, issues of, of rigid inequalities, of abject poverty, of, 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 of establishing sovereignty, that, that we sort of have to keep our heads down and not really get too caught up in kind of global geopolitics. But I think that's slightly different from what you're saying, which is that India was very very much concerned with the world, um, but it, it, it wasn't necessarily seeing th things through the prism of, look, we don't want to be with the Eastern Bloc or the Western Bloc. We kind of want to do our own thing, that there were other guiding principles. Is that kind of an accurate reflection? Okay, I absolutely agree with you. People who see the world through the non-alignment lens often see India as sit standing aside from the main uh, conflict of the age, the biggest issues of the age. But India stuck its nose in a lot of the conflicts of the age. So they were very involved, for example, in trying to uh, negotiate a peace in Korea and in helping with the exchange of prisoners of war uh, in the aftermath of the Korean War or even during the Korean War. So they were constantly sticking their nose in things. And actually, India was very concerned with building international architecture. So they loved the United Nations, even if the UN let India down when it came to Kashmir. They were very concerned with building an international order. And we tend to think of the international order, you know, Bretton Woods, the UN, as being shaped by the Americans, of course, right? They but India shaped those big institutions and they shaped them in line with Indian values. And that was an important part of their foreign policy. Uh, I want to come back to sort of where we started, Taylor, and ask you about secularism, right? Which in some ways was was the origins of this project. You were working on a different project, but but this was the kind of original link. And, and on secularism, um, you have something very interesting to say, which is, that, uh, again, I want to quote, India's celebratory secularism might be likened to the facade of a building rather than its foundations, right? So uh, the way that you explain it is the emphasis was on on monuments, on laws, on on grand displays, on, 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 on revered personalities. 
But but again, these things had very little to do with social realities on the ground, that there was a real disconnect there, right? Um, and, and at some point you asked the question, um, you know, where was Nehru on all of this, right? And I guess, you know, a skeptic might ask, of course, with the, with the benefit of, 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 of hindsight, you know, what else could the state have done to kind of secure secularism, right? I mean, how could it rewire society or, or change its fundamental DNA, you know, and, and is Nehru really to blame for this shortcoming? So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of curious how you, how you think about this as a, as a, as a historian about, you know, um, you know, what was Nehru's legacy on secularism and how might it have been different perhaps? Sure. I mean, I'm, there's quite a lot of questions in there. Let me take them kind of in opposite order. Is Nehru to blame? No, he doesn't get credit for everything. And so he doesn't get blame for everything, right? India is a huge country, 300 to 400 million people at this time, layers and layers of state and bureaucracy that go between Nehru and the ordinary person prevent him from even being aware of what is happening to people on the ground, let alone doing enough to, to rebuild a mosque or to restore a Muslim family to their home. I don't think he can be held responsible for it all. Um, then what could the state have done to rewire India's DNA? I think we have to be careful here about assuming there's a kind of fundamental antagonism between Hindus and Muslims that has always existed in India. That's a that's an um, imperialist narrative, and that's just not true. There are many times where Hindus and Muslims get along just fine, they're, they're interspersed with moments of conflict, but there's there's a lot to suggest that Indians can live together in peace, and they had done over thousands of years. So what could the state have done to ensure they live together in peace for longer? Yeah, I think that's a fair question. I think the, the state in Nehru's period the celebration of prominent individuals, the focus on temples and uh, mosques of the most prominent kind, uh, the celebration of various holidays together, all of that actually does a reasonably good job of setting the tone. So if we contrast that with India today, Modi's government doesn't have to plan to set on fire a madrasa in Bihar. They don't have to plan that. All they have to do is set the tone and suggest that the people who do that won't be punished. And so setting the tone matters. It stops people who have brought in ideas about, um, a, a, about the right of minorities to live in a country. Uh, it stops them from acting upon those ideas, right? What more could the state have done? I suppose, I think, I often think that the government of India sees its number one threat in the 1950s and 60s as communists. And this is a kind of Cold War mentality. They are afraid of India becoming another China. And so who did, okay, they, they ban the RSS after Gandhi's assassination, but then the ban is lifted after a short time. Uh, who do they spend most time trying to thwart? The communists. I suppose they could have paid more attention to what the Hindu right was doing, but they didn't see that as a major threat. And what the Hindu right has done over 70 years is propagate a set of narratives about who belongs in India and about um, the Indian history that would have been very difficult for the state to counter without severely restricting free speech. Uh, so, you know, I'm a historian, I'm better at looking at the past and what actually happened than saying what they should have done. 
but I think in terms of holding in those certain forces rather than the whole of society, but those certain forces that would say that Muslims don't belong, I think they did a reasonable job in setting the tone and therefore holding those back. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. So, so let me kind of come at this from a slightly different way, right? I, I mean, I think our... Uh, understanding of secularism in India is obviously very different from our understanding of secularism in many other contexts, say the American context or the Western European context. And, and the way I think we have, uh, have come to understand it, and by we, I'm just making gross generalizations here, but right, I mean, I think that the, the standard kind of um, uh, line is sort of that of Rajiv Bargov's, right, which is, you know, the state decided to uh, have a, a, an equal distance from religions and an equal embrace of religions, right? In fact, I think he calls it a principle, principle distance. Um, and so just on that score alone, I mean, um, uh, you know, you know, not putting the bar as high as kind of, you know, uh, Hindu Muslim Brotherhood. Um, what does the record tell us about uh, Nehru's commitment to, to that sort of dogma, right, of, of equal, e- equal distance, equal embrace, if we want to call it that? Um, uh, was, he, was he wedded to that? Did he, did he abide by that? Did, 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 did his historical record clear on how much he tried to sort of spread that sort of idea in society? That's a very good question. When it comes to how the state should interact with various religious groups and their demands, Nehru personally is very reactive. He would much prefer that communalism dies down in the way that religious hatred died down in Europe. So uh, a secularizing process that is interconnected with industrialization and uh, increasing wealth in society. So when he thinks about how to create a, when he thought about how to create a more harmonious society, it was all about economic development rather than about what the state should do with this religious group or that religious group and this demand and that demand. And so when it comes to that um, principal distance that uh, Rajiv Bhargava talks about, that is a kind of ad hoc a reactionary set of policies that doesn't have any kind of coherence. So one group would demand something and then there might be a counter demand. And, and it's all worked out without any overall program that says we must maintain an equal different distance. In fact, there's a lot of debate at the time about what a secular state should do. So in Hyderabad, for example, the Nizam of Hyderabad had funded a lot of religious institutions, uh, everything from mosques and madrasas to BHU. Um, Banaras Hindu University. And so they want to roll back this funding, but they can't decide how. They can't decide, should the state fund nothing? Should it fund 10%, uh, should 10% of its fund go to Muslims because there's 10% Muslims in the population? They can't, they can't figure out what the formula is. And Nehru didn't have a formula for that either. Uh, I want to kind of transition to asking about another S, uh, socialism. Um, I found this chapter to be extremely eye-opening, uh, particularly your comments on on planning. And, and, and what you say there is that, look, planning per se was not socialist. Uh, rather, the, the relationship between planning and the state 
existed on a spectrum, right? And 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 again, you you sort of have this line which echoes, I think, you know, what we just talked about on secularism, where you say, you know, planning for state-run industry was like a painstakingly crafted icing on a cake that otherwise lacked a, a recipe, right? Which is a very kind of evocative way of thinking about it. Um, could you just elaborate a bit on this kind of spectrum that existed um, between planning and the state and where in your judgment you think India sat? So I think we have to look back to the period of the 1950s in a global perspective, right? So this is in the aftermath, not only of the Second World War, but of the the Great Depression of the 1930s. This is the height of Keynesian economics. And every single state is planning. Uh, The Americans are, the British are. Pakistan has a plan that is its first plan is in 1955. And so everyone is planning. So just because you have a plan doesn't mean you're socialist. Where does... So... What, what would be a strong connection between planning uh, and state control over the economy? Well, let's take the Soviet Union, right? Sorry to, to revert to stereotypes, but the Soviets tried to take control over every single aspect of the economy. They set targets for everything from the number of shoes to be produced to the number of tanks to be produced, and they control prices. India's government takes a much, much, much more reduced control over the state. So if you take the height of... Um, the most ambitious plans, the second plan, PC Mahalanobis, who was claimed to be the author of the plan. I mean, I think we have to be careful about giving anyone sole authorship over anything in this in, in history generally. But Mahalanobis is it is after the inauguration of the second plan, he goes around explaining the plan to everyone and he divides India's economy into two sections. And he says, there's there's the bit we can control, the planned bit, and then there's everything else. And what he calls the, or what we call today, the informal economy. And the bit that he thinks he can control is about 17% of India's economy in the 1950s. So they really actually only have plans for a tiny amount. The rest of the plan covers all sorts of things. It covers community development, it covers um, agricultural production, but the state just, it has its own, they're kind of like a Christmas wish list, these targets. Please do this, peasants. We will help you produce as much as we can, but they're, they're not, they're not able to force the peasants to to produce in that way. You might contrast it with China, where the targets are are sort of handed down all the way through to individual peasants in individual villages who are given targets and made to made to meet those. That doesn't happen in India. Uh, you know, this is kind of linked to this whole question of the strength of the state, right? Which which is another sort of myth in your book. Uh, and, and you say, look, you know, one of the biggest canards told about India's post-colonial state is that it was a strong state, right? And I think certainly we can see now, again, in 2023, that India never really truly had a strong state, given the, the incapacities we see, uh, you know, all around us. But 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 you do acknowledge a couple of things which I think are important, right? Number one, India did have a unitary state that uh, bestowed the center with great powers, right? And of course, we've always talked about Indian federalism as as being a centralized form of federalism or a quasi-federal state even. Uh, Number two, you you say it it did have an effective state from the standpoint of of planning and and development. Uh, and, And number three, that it had an authoritarian sort of despotic face sometimes that, that that kept it somewhat aloof from its citizens, which again, doesn't necessarily mean it was strong, but but suggests that it, it had a power to resist, um, you know, societal pushback. But in your telling, these qualities don't themselves equal a strong state. Um, why not? 
Yeah, so first I think, um, you know, if you don't mind me saying, I don't think I said India had a unitary state. I think what's really interesting is the dynamic between the federal censor and the, the states in the Nehru years, when everything is governed by Congress. Yeah, what you see is a constant attempt by the union to devolve initiative and especially uh, tax collection to the lower levels. Uh, and the states resist that. They don't want to collect more taxes. In fact, Panchayati Raj is introduced in the late 1950s to devolve more power to the lowest levels of government in order so they can collect more taxes. I mean, it's exactly why the British devolved more power <laughs> uh, 50 years before. So. But what happens is the states and the lower levels resist collecting taxes and they're all governed by Congress. And so any kind of initiative is a Congress initiative. So it's this constant push out is, is resisted by those below and uh, in the regions. Now, uh, does India have an effective state in the 50s and 60s when it comes to development? That's not really what the state is trying to do in the 50s. They're not trying to control all the development. So take, for example, uh, state-run enterprises. You would think that this is, oh, okay, this is the moment we can finally see the state trying to control the economy if we look at um, the pharmaceutical industry that is developed by the government uh, or, uh, yeah the um, steel industry, for example. But in fact, when they set up these state-run enterprises, they do so on the basis that they would be best run if they were run as much like private enterprises as possible, at a distance from the existing bureaucracy, if at all possible. And when they review these state-run enterprises in the late 50s, early 60s, they decide that they're not running very well, in part because they run too much like the ordinary state. And so they, they are not happy with how things are running. Uh, they don't see development, uh, even in terms of state-run enterprises, as running terribly well for themselves. Now, of course, the effective state, or rather the state, has a hugely uh, authoritarian side that is inherited from the Raj. And it has to do with how they deal with uh, political unrest and disobedience and everything to do with the disciplinary side of the state, especially with the police. And in that case, the police are uh, the police and the judicial system are also inherit because they're inherited from the Raj. They they don't function terribly well. They get gummed up really quickly when there's any kind of large scale unrest. They the police aren't very good at investigating crimes. They're better at inventing crimes or at colluding in crimes. The chapter on the state covers uh, the attempt in. Bombay at the time, then it becomes Maharashtra and Gujarat to ban alcohol. And the police are deeply involved in smuggling uh, and uh, in, in creating kind of fake encounters to pretend that they're doing their best to, to rein in the smuggling and the illegal production of alcohol. And so the disciplinary side of the state doesn't work very well for them at all in part because it's arbitrary. I think, I mean, you're the political scientist. You might tell me what, uh, what makes an effective uh, police organization, but part of it has to do with the equal application of the law, and the law is absolutely not applied equally, and it has to do with the effective, um, effectively pushing each case through a system in a, in a standardized way. So you get an, an arrest, an investigation, a trial, a, a, a conviction, and then punishment. And that just doesn't happen in a standard way for, for ordinary people in India at this time. So none of it really works the way one would hope. And it's the arbitrary nature of that disciplinary state, which 
which I think is most irksome to ordinary Indians and probably to the to the various governments as well. I mean, this is a, a kind of a natural segue, actually, to to the to the bit of the book that talks about uh, kind of India's democratic credentials, right? And 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 you, like others, uh, um, have noted that look, India has a pretty impressive record of holding large and very complex elections. Um, but you go on to say that you really have to separate out the the hardware uh, of democracy from the software, and 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 this reminds me a lot, actually, of the debates we have today about the economy, right? Where a lot of people say, look. Uh, this government, the Modi government, has done a great job on building hardware, right? Whether it's digital payments, whether it's a bankruptcy law, whether it's Aadhaar, whether it's um, uh, uh, you know GST and so on and so forth, where they have fallen short is on the software, right? Which is you know rule of law, um, um, getting courts to to move in a timely manner, um, policy certainty, right? Things that are that are not so much about building physical or digital infrastructure, but really the kind of policy framework. Um, in your view, just tell us a little bit about, you know, back when, when, when in, in Nehru's era, what, what were some of the software quote unquote failures of Indian democracy, right? And, and it, because I think they might tell us something about the very shortcomings of Indian democracy today that we often lament. Yeah, sure. So um, the hardware, of course, is the uh, election commission and the and the parliament, you know, Lok Sabha and local state assemblies, and even Panchayati Raj. Uh, and all of that is set up uh, and they have elections and, and those institutions run. They're not suspended uh, at the time or they are, you know, you get president's rule occasionally, but um, they more or less work. The software is, is, is what is understood at the time as kind of democratic norms the way Indians conduct themselves, the way democracy might help Indians to better conduct themselves and better live together and develop together. And so there's three aspects of that, I think. The first one has to do with the expectation that the everyday conduct of democracy, which is, in theory... Uh, having a reasoned debate with one's opponent and then asking the voters to choose rationally between those two opponents. Uh, the idea was that Indians may have affiliations and um, loyalties to caste groups, but this, this act of engaging in democratic debate would release them from those caste associations or those communal parochial associations as they were understood. And of course, Indian democracy doesn't work like that. M.N. Srinivasan and um, Rajni Kotari and others are studying it in the 1950s and showing that caste affiliation becomes stronger as people engage in democratic debate and, and in elections. And that's very frustrating to Indians at the time. So um, J.P. Narayan writes to Nehru before the second election and says, no matter what the result is, this election is going to be a failure. And, and actually, democracy in India is a failure. And he has other issues with Indian democracy, which are really interesting. But one of his main complaints is that caste is activated, not deactivated by democracy. Um, the second thing that they're very concerned about is in the 50s and 60s is how expensive elections are. And how political parties, especially the Congress party, pays for the expenses of the election. So they rely heavily on big businesses. And then there's this question that arises in the late 1950s, really, of what are the big businesses getting 
in exchange for all that they donate to the Congress party. Um, and here it's Minu Masani who really puts a finger on what businesses get in exchange for donating to the Congress party. He says they're not affecting policy. So Congress says, look, our policies aren't affected by big business. And Masani says, yes, you're right. Policies aren't affected. Instead, what is affected is who gets a license, who gets to open a plant here, who gets to uh, expand production there. And there's a real connection that is established uh, in the first two elections and really comes to light by the 1960s and 70s between uh, who pays for Congress's elections and who gets licenses. Uh, and, and that is seen as a problem by the Congress party and by other people at the time. Opposition parties find it really problematic, obviously. Um, and the third sort of wider software issue for Indian democracy at the time is that, and it goes back to the state and the question of the state, is that the Congress party tries to create a different kind of administrative apparatus from what they inherited from the Raj. They were very unhappy with it. They didn't like how obstructionist those administrators were. If you think about Yes Minister and how you know the, the program and, and how hum Sir Humphreys is always telling the minister, no, that's not possible, this isn't possible, that's not possible. That's how Indians in the in Congress party saw the administration working. They just felt that like they were constantly obstructing things. So they wanted to replace these administrators with people who uh, had enthusiasm for government programs. And what that meant was, in effect, administrators become pro-Congress over the course of the 40s and 50s. And those who are most helpful in government programs get promoted and those who aren't get, you know, don't move anywhere or get transferred. Um, and that's not a problem for Congress. And it's not a problem for India until they have to change governments, right? So then in 1957, the communists get in power in Kerala and they decide that the administration is obstructing them and they would like a more enthusiastic set of administrators. They begin to transfer out people who are not enthusiastic about the communist program. And so it's where you get the, the transfer of power being able to switch from one political party in power to another political party without breaking heads, as they say at the time, that this whole program of, cre of employing and promoting enthusiastic administrators really comes aground and presents real problems for India. And they, they can't see that at the time. So there's a couple of problems that they can see, um, but they don't see this problem of the connection between state and political parties as a problem. By the, by the 1960s. You know, Taylor, you, you note at the outset of the book that your objective is not simply to kind of, you know, punch holes in these myths that have been built up over time, but, but you also want to put forward a set of alternate characteristics that you believe perhaps more accurately, more adequately define the post-independence era. And, you know, I, I wish we could go through all of them, but, but let me just flag this idea um, that 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 you lay out there that look it may be time to move beyond this notion of India's founding moment quote unquote right uh, and and you acknowledge of course the early years were crucial but they didn't necessarily set up everything that followed and so I guess that you know the the, the pushback of this would be you know 
didn't the founding moment, you know, the, the kind of constitutional settlement, you know, begin a path-dependent process that that ingrains certain principles into everyday practice? You know, whether it's the economy, social relations, nature of political competition. I mean, uh, you know, isn't that uh, wasn't that a kind of critical juncture that then, you know, it didn't uh, wasn't deterministic, but sort of set India down a particular path? Sure. I mean, I think here, Milan, where you and I are uh, on opposite sides of a disciplinary divide, because you're a political scientist <laughs> and you believe in path dependency, and I'm a historian, and all I can see is contingency. Um, and so I, I think that's it's part, partly about how we approach our subject. Um, but if we, if we move away from that disciplinary difference and think about what the Constitution was supposed to set and train, Let's look at the Constitution itself. It was expected, and the Constitution set up various mechanisms for India to change. What did they? So they have a whole section in the Constitution that is temporary measures, um, uh, including. So, what are the things that are supposed to be temporary? Reservations for scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. Uh, English, as uh, the main national language, is supposed to be temporary. Um, Kashmir status is supposed to be temporary. yeah, thirty seventy. Yeah. All of these things are meant to be temporary. Those who wrote the constitution expected India to be set on a path by that constitution uh, in, in, in the direction that they wanted it to head. And all, all of those temporary measures are more or less, apart from 370, they're still, they haven't changed in the way that the, the founders expected them to change. India didn't move in the direction that it was expected to move. Now, a path dependency theorist might suggest that the path that it was set on was a different one. Um, but the path they tried to set themselves on didn't transpire in the way that they hoped it would, is, I guess, the historian's answer. <laughs> you, 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 you sort of end the book um, uh, in, a, in a very interesting place, and I, maybe this is a good place to conclude this conversation, by, by saying that the, the, the peaceful revolutions that Nehru and many of his colleagues called for uh, ended up transforming India in ways that these folks could neither foresee nor control, right? And and in some sense, these very transformations that they kind of kickstarted would eventually be their undoing, right? Um, and, and and so I, I couldn't help but sort of read this and sort of, you know, ask the question, it may sound a little bit flippant, is, you know, it shouldn't Modi and the BJP actually be thanking Nehru, right? I mean, in other words, the processes that he and his compatriots at motion have contributed uh, very much to the political shift we see in India today. Now, that may be an uncomfortable question to pose to a historian, but but I will ask you anyway. I mean, is there merit in, in this line of thinking? Sure, I, I kind of have two answers to that. Um, first, I think uh, Modi Gosh has a complicated relationship with Nehru. I mean, I, I think a psychoanalyst might take 10 or 20 years to work out his relationship, but the BJP has a kind of contradictory policy or approach. It's not really a policy, but an approach to Nehru. So on the one hand, they uh, try to efface him, right? Not mention his name, not put his picture on important um, documents uh, and try to replace Modi with him. And on the other hand, in a lot of cases, they bring Modi and Nehru closer together. So when they get criticized about their policy in China, they say, well, look at the 1962 war. They're showing that they're not that different, right? And, and arguing that Nehru was worse. When an, anybody criticizes their policies with regard to uh, minorities, they go, well, Nehru caused partition, 
right? Uh, and nothing could be worse than partition. <laughs> and so they're, they're actually kind of drawing similarities between the BJP and the earliest Congress government in order to deflect criticism, because that criticism comes from Congress. And these, the, the little cherry-picked instances have just enough truthiness in them that it shuts up the, op the opposition criticism. Doesn't mean they are true, but it makes it very hard to debate. Um, so there is, there are some similarities, in other words, and the BJP is aware of them. Should they be thanking? <laughs> well, I think uh, I, I obviously don't think they would do that, but I think I, there's there's kind of two two answers, uh, two further answers to this. The first one is that these are Congress's failings, mostly. In the 40s, 50s, and 60s, right? The the failures of uh, the attempt to establish a kind of hegemonic secularism, the failure to develop as much as they hoped they could, um, the the failure to create that democratic software, uh, and and a truly vibrant uh, and workable democracy that wasn't corrupted. These are Congress's failures, and they're the BJP's starting point. Well, they're not quite the same thing. And, and by the time you get to the 1960s, Congress is aware of most of these failures and they want to correct them. They don't really have what we would consider to be the right answers because they don't, they don't do a big course correction in the 60s and 70s. Um, but the second answer to that is about what Congress should do with all of this. And I think what would be useful for Congress would be to acknowledge some of those failures because people weren't universally happy at the end of the Nehru years. They weren't universally content. And so when Congress jumps to Nehru's defense and implies that things were great under Nehru, um, SCs and OBCs, Muslims, people from the rural populations, they all think, no, no, that doesn't fit my understanding of the Nehru years. And so Congress might do better if they distance themselves from the Nehru years, not not to sort of totally abjure everything to do with Nehru, but to acknowledge the complexities of the Nehru years, rather than to to constantly defend them as if they were a kind of halcyon days of Indian independent after Indian independence. My guest on the show this week is the scholar Taylor Sherman. Her new book is called Nehru's India, A History in Seven Myths. Uh, Pratina Vanil, writing in the Times Literary Supplement, calls Nehru's India a revisionist tour de force that shatters Nehruvian mythology. Taylor, this is, a, a, as I said before we started recording, a, a terrific book, a really readable book, but a very deep and, and thoughtful and provocative book. Um, you know, congrats so much on all the success and the wonderful praise that it's receiving. And thanks for taking the time to come on the show. Gosh, thanks very much, Milena. It was very nice to have a chat with you. Grant Tabasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Nithya Lab. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Isabel Villegas is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.